Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. We are in a series, we've been in a series called We Are the Church. And we've been going to some, I think, very formative passages for us uh, as the church in general, but specifically Renaissance Church. We've been focusing on uh, just portions of the New Testament that really give us insight on what it means for us to be the church. And so we're going to finish that series this morning. It's our fifth week of We Are the Church, and uh, we're going to be looking at an iconic passage this morning. In 2010, a man by the name of Derek Sivers gave a TED Talk on how to start a movement. The talk was three minutes long. There were 200 people in the room. These were the movers and shakers of our day. The Bill Gates kind of people are in this room. And this man steps up to deliver this talk on how to start a movement. To do it, he shows a video, a YouTube video, of a man dancing in a field. They were at a concert, an outdoor concert, and the, um, the people are sitting on the grass listening to the music. And there's one man that um, begins to dance off to the side by himself, and he starts waving his arms around, and he's doing the dance, right? And, and it's kind of like um, I, I, all the people are sort of looking over him like, oh my gosh, like this guy's kind of crazy. He might have been a little bit inebriated. I don't know. I don't know this, what was going on there, but he's dancing by himself. And then within a few moments, another person sees the man dancing and joins in. He was the first follower. And he begins to try to mimic the man. And the man grabs this guy's arms and shows him how to do the motions. And so he starts waving his arms and dancing the way this guy started dancing. And then in a few more moments, a couple more people. And that first follower begin to tell them how to do the dance. They start dancing, they're waving their arms, and within three minutes, it goes from a lone man dancing in a field to the entire field of people are all dancing and waving their arms in the same way. It was a movement from start to finish in three minutes. What we're going to look at this morning is the beginning of our movement, the Jesus movement, started 2,000 years ago when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, what we're going to celebrate next week, when he's resurrected and he begins to appear to his disciples and to 500 other people that were all alive while the New Testament was being written, and he begins the movement. We find it in Acts 2. If you want to start looking there with me in Acts 2, um, it is a snapshot of the early church. It's a photograph for us that Luke takes and records it for us. And I think there's a purpose for him recording this for us. Um, It is an amazing picture. We find it in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. Let me just give you a little bit of backstory here. So 
Jesus has been crucified. Three days later, he raises from the dead, right, what we celebrate on Easter. Then he ascends to his father. When he ascends, he kept telling his disciples, look, guys, you want me to go. You really do. Like, you don't think you want me to go, but you really want me to go. Because what's going to happen is when I return to the Father, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And you really are going to love what he's going to do in you and through you. And so he tells them, he keeps telling them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, these first followers are sitting in an upper room. There's 120 people there. They're gathering just like this, and they're praying together. They're constantly praying together. And then there was a moment where the, the sound of a rushing mighty wind, it, it began to blow like a sound, right? And it fills the house where they were praying together. And it says that what looked like tongues of fire began to appear on top of their heads. And they began to declare the wonders of God in other tongues. The whole town hears the sound. They hear the rushing wind. They hear the commotion. And all these people that have come back to Jerusalem from all over the nations are there. And they're, they're hearing the wonders of God in their own language. And they're like, what is going on? These guys must be drunk. Like, what's happening, right? Like the man dancing in the field, we're thinking like, this guy's had a little bit too much. And then Peter steps up and delivers the most amazing sermon. At the end of that sermon, 3,000 people become followers of Christ. Okay, so here's what happens. This is the, the big bang is the Holy Spirit coming and this order begins to emerge. It's what we're going to read about in chapter 2, verse 42. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people." Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. This was the beginning of the movement. And Jesus had told them that this movement, he said, you're going to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, where they're at, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then it was going to go to the ends of the earth. It was going to have a ripple effect across the entire planet. In fact, the very reason that you and I are seated in this room together today is because of what happened at this moment here when the movement began. And this movement is continuing all across the globe. We live in an unprecedented time right now. At this time, these 120 believers, by the time 315 AD came around when Constantine declared Christianity the, uh, the state religion of Rome, this 120 people had become 20 plus million people throughout the Roman Empire. Now doing some simple math, and, and I know that the life expectancy was probably lower than it is today, there's probably 400 to 500 people turning to Christ 
every single day. Right now in China, during the bloody cultural revolution that started in the 60s and 70s, at that point in time, there were maybe two or three million Christians. They, They tore down church buildings, they imprisoned pastors, they really clamped down on Christianity because it felt like a threat from the West. Today, there are over 100 million believers in China. Did you know that it's on track to become the most Christian nation on the planet by 2030? If you do the math from the 60s and 70s till now, it's about an average of 5,400 people turning to Christ every single day. Can you wrap your mind around that? Right now, there are uh, 400 million or so Protestant Christians on the planet, and 40-plus percent of them live on the continent of Africa. Africa is alive with the gospel right now. Right now, in, um, in India and in Asia, southern Asia, the gospel is exploding. There are reports of people in Morocco that keep having a vision of a man in white, Jesus appearing to people that are in countries that are closed to Christianity. The gospel is spreading. The movement is still moving to this very moment. It's an amazing time that we live in, but here's the thing. We live in America. In the last 100 years, we've seen the decline of Christianity in our nation. So we have to ask, how do we join the movement of God? How do we as a church join the movement of God? In his uh, book called Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell says that every movement really has at its core some unique idea. It's an idea that's so good, it's so wonderful that he calls it sticky. It's a sticky idea. It's like something if you've ever had a, like a piece of gum, like if you have children and they chew gum and they spit it in your hand, you're like, oh, gross, right? You know, and you're trying to get it into the trash can, you just can't get it off. It's like, it's sticky. This is the idea of an, an idea, a concept that's so unique and so sticky that it's almost irresistible. You see, the unique idea that has been irresistible in the gospel of Jesus is this. It's the idea that a personal God would love us to the extent that he would show us grace. Grace by giving him his own self in the form of Jesus to to take all of our sins upon him and to be crushed so that he could give his righteousness to us. That idea of grace is the sticky idea that makes the movement move. And so what I want us to do this morning is look at how does grace make a community like this that we see in Acts 2. The the title of my sermon, if you care, is The Grace Marked Move of God. It's the grace marked move of God. Let's, let's look at a few things here in Acts 2 42. We see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it says that they uh, devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. This would have been a large gathering. 
very large gathering. There would have been thousands of people that had just heard about this Jesus. They'd heard about forgiveness of sins, and they were alive. They were, they were born again by this gospel, and they're gathering in large gatherings. The, the first marker, grace marker, is this, celebration. These were people that were marked by celebration. Here's what I mean. In this time in Jerusalem, whenever there was a huge festival like Passover, that's when all the people would come into town, right? All your cousins and your, your, your old buddy that moved away, like all those people would come back into town. They're all staying in each other's houses. They're going to the temple together to worship. They're praying. They're eating meals together. They're singing. Like it would have been an atmosphere of festival, of celebration, and this is the environment, the atmosphere of this early church. It was an atmosphere of celebration. You see, grace releases celebration. Grace releases celebration. In Isaiah 9, uh, I'm gonna read a passage to you. Isaiah 9, he's, he's prophesying about the birth of the Prince of Peace. It's the, it's the thing that we talk about at Christmas time when we say the Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. All that comes out of this passage in Isaiah 9. But check out what he says in Isaiah 9 verse 2. He says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. He's meaning, look, God's done something so amazing that it's like a harvest festival. People are like the, the, all the food's coming in from the fields and there's a party going on because this amazing thing has happened. And then here's the why. He says it in verse 4. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. Now, you and I think of yoke and we're like, breakfast, right? Yoke is an egg. Egg has yoke. We eat yoke for breakfast. No, no, no. That's not what a yoke is. A yoke would have been what the oxen would have worn around their neck as they were plowing the field, right? They're pulling against this yoke, and that's how they would farm, and so this yoke would be like the thing that you're dragging behind you, like this, this heavy yoke, this heavy burden behind you. He says that he's broken their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. So he's prophesying about the Messiah coming, the Prince of Peace, and that what's going to happen is there's going to be great joy and great rejoicing because he's going to break the yoke off of the people. So what does that mean for us? What is this breaking of the yoke? Well, here's what that means for us. That means that you and I are released from the dominion and domination of sin, Right, those things in our life that we haven't been able to get rid of and it's like that heavy thing that we're pulling behind us. It's, he breaks the domination of our sin. He also breaks the dominion or domination of a guilty conscience, right? Because you've been forgiven. 
It, it breaks the domination of fear in our lives, the enslavement to fear that we feel. It breaks the works based righteousness of always thinking, oh, if I would just do a little bit more, if I would just pray a little bit more, if I would just read my Bible a little bit more, if I would just do one more thing, then maybe God would be finally pleased with me. No, no, no. He breaks off this works-based righteousness. He breaks off demonic oppression. You know that there is a spiritual realm and that we are... uh, under attack is what the scriptures teach about, that there is demonic oppression, but he's broken the power of demonic oppression. It says that he's, he's broken off a despair from our lives and that we're no longer dominated by an orphan mentality of thinking that we're all alone in the world with no one to help us. See, we have been released We've been set free. And what happens is when we really begin to understand that we've been set free by Jesus, it releases celebration, joy. He breaks the heavy yoke. Grace says that God has done something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. The second thing that we see in this passage is that these were people marked by the presence of God. If you look at verse 43, he says this about them. Everyone was filled with awe. That would have been like a reverence, a fearfulness, like like you're in the presence of holiness. That That would be this awe, right? And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles, can you imagine that as seeing these apostles heal people, right? Peter, it says he would just walk past people and his shadow would touch them and they would be healed. These amazing signs and wonders are happening because they're in the presence of God. It was marked by presence. You see, grace ushers us into the presence of God. At our uh, prayer and worship gathering this past Wednesday night, I was talking about this idea of God's righteousness. And I, I had a picture in my mind of um, a child that's orphaned, right? It's all alone, it's by itself, it's a street kid. And it's dead of winter, and it's in the cold place. I'm thinking of like, you know, England or some place where I can see a kid just shivering, and he's dirty, and he's hungry, and he's been beat up, and he's been cast out. And, and then a kind stranger walks up to that child, and he has this nice, clean, expensive, warm coat. And he takes off this nice clean, expensive, warm coat, and he wraps it around a orphan child. See, that's the picture we have of the work of Jesus in bringing righteousness, that you and I, in all of our mistakes, in our sins, in our past, and our regrets, are like that orphan child, like we are filthy, and yet God comes up to us, and he puts this holy, expensive, extravagant righteousness over us. And the scriptures tell us that by that alone, we are able to come into the presence of God. 
Paul talks about in in Romans 3, he says this. He says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That expensive coat of righteousness that covers our filth is to all. Every one of you who believe in Jesus, you have been covered in that righteousness. To all who believe, since there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews, he says, he takes it just a little bit further. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Now, just get that that we can come into the presence of holiness boldly? What? It's unheard of. (laughs) The priests at their time, they would go in with bells sewn into their garments and they would go in very cautiously because if there was any sin in their life, they would fall over dead. The holiness of God was scary. And yet, He says, by this covering of Jesus, you and I can go boldly into the presence. Grace ushers us into the presence of God. We cannot miss in this passage. We see it in in verse 42 and, and again in verse 46 that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, this would be the word koinonia in the Greek. Now, that would mean the community. They were devoted to the community. It says that they were meeting not only in the temple courts, but they were gathering from house to house. It says that they were eating their food, their meals together, right? And it says they did that with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This was A community, like people sharing life together. It was fellowship. There was something beautiful about this fellowship. In fact, this would have been, uh, in their time, this would have been the idyllic Greek community. This would have been the, the utopian ideal of their entire society. But guess what? Government didn't make it. Government didn't have the power to create this kind of community. It was only grace that actually had the power to make community. That's because grace frees us to love one another. It frees us to love one another. We talked about this a bit in, uh, I think it was week two, where we talked about becoming an increasingly functional family. The idea that God begins to work in us by his grace, and instead of being like these needy people that are like, love me, fill me, you know, help me all the time, it's like we actually begin to come in with the sense of like, you know, I have something to bring to this community. I, not only do I need them, but I, I, I have something to give them. That grace has a way of freeing us to love one another. Now, I'm not a mechanical person. Uh, I, 
I tried to be, I used to own an old Bronco. It was an early classic Bronco. If you've ever seen one of those before, it's so cool. It's so awesome. And it just sat in my garage for years. It's like, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to fix it. And I didn't have any money to fix it. And so finally I sold it. But I do know this. I know that if the oil leaks out of an engine, at some point you're going to have major problems. Have you ever experienced that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had a car that had leaked oil all the time and then you like you realize like the temperature is getting hotter, all that kind of stuff? And then if you've seen this happen before, that engine will eventually completely seize up. Because the parts within that engine are constantly, they're, they're interacting with one another, right? The, this thing turns that thing, which makes that thing go boom, and then all that kind of stuff happens inside of your engine, right? And it propels your car. All of that stuff, this interaction needs oil, or at some point it will fail. See, that's what grace is like in our community, Without the oil of grace within our relationships, our community will fail. And a lot of you know that. You have broken friendships because grace leaked out of the relationship. Some of you have broken marriages because grace leaked out of the relationship. You, maybe you've even seen churches that split or that the, the fellowship was about an inch deep because there was no grace in the church. You see, grace is the only thing that can make community and actually preserve it for the long run. It's the oil in our relationships. Grace leaves space for the imperfections of one another. As our lives are interacting with one another, right? We do things sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. We might say something and it just hurts a little bit. It just hits you and you're like, oh man, that really hurt my feelings when they said that, right? And then if you don't have grace, that thing's gonna build up inside of you and you're just gonna eventually either wanna like, you know, punch them in the face or you're gonna wanna like never see them again or something's going to break down without grace. Grace is the space that we have for the imperfections of one another. Lastly, what we see in this community is we see uncommon generosity. In verses 44 and 45, it says, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. This had to be completely unusual. Like how many of you have sold your house thinking, you know, I could cash this baby out and I could like give that to this ministry or this church or, or I'm gonna go sell my car. I could get $15,000 out of that thing. I'm gonna go give that away to something else. How many of us really think that way? Right, most of us are thinking like, gosh, if I, if I just made like $300 more a month, I, I could do this. And then if I could do that. And, and we, we think the opposite way, but they had an uncommon generosity. Right now, in the American church, only 9% of all believers give 
10% or more of their income away. Did you know that? Only 9%, one out of maybe 10 or 11 people actually give back to the Lord 10% or more of their income. See, we are the most, uh, we are the richest church the world has ever known. And we live in the richest nation that the world has ever known. And yet in the midst of that, we are one of the least generous. And I think God wants to do something different. I think God wants to do a work of grace in us that we would be people who gladly give our things away. One of my favorite stories of, of generosity in the New Testament is a story of Jesus at a meal. He was in Bethany. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Lazarus is sitting at the table with him. Just imagine the conversation. What was it like when you were dead, right? You know, they're talking with Lazarus. Martha's humming around. She's, she's cleaning. She's bringing the food out. She's pouring the drinks. And it says that Mary comes in with a pound of pure, expensive perfume. It was called nard. It doesn't sound very cool to us, but at that time it was really cool. This would have been worth a year's wages. Tomorrow's tax day, so you've probably been thinking like, how much did we make last year? Imagine that much money being just poured out on the feet of Jesus. She came in and she fell at Jesus' feet and she broke open the perfume and poured it on and it says that she was crying and she was washing his feet with her hair. You see, for a woman in that time period, your hair would be like your glory. It would be like one of the most important things about your appearance. She's wiping the dirt from his feet with her glory, pouring out this extravagant gift. And what I think happened in that moment, it says the, the fragrance filled the house, but what I think happened in that moment is that the fragrance filled the throne room of God. That the Father could smell worship. And he was like, oh, that is so good. This is an uncommon generosity. Grace says to us, you're worth more than many sparrows. Why do you worry? Why do you worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to have to wear, where you're going to live? Why do you, don't you know your father cares about you? The one who crushed his son to save you, don't you know he really, really loves you? And you can trust him with your possessions. <laughs> Grace tells us, you already have everything that you could ever need in Jesus. It's yours. You already have it. You lack nothing. Grace fosters uncommon generosity. So we see these markers, this, this church that was marked by celebration, joy, festival, party, right? Because the yoke, the heavy yoke has been broken. We're set free. We see a church marked by presence, like the outpouring of God's presence of people who had been washed clean coming into the holiness of God. We see a church that was marked by community of like real friendships and, and fellowship and meals and coming over to our house 
And we see this church that was marked by generosity. I believe this is the kind of church that God's grace wants to make us into. That these would be the markers of Renaissance Church. I just want to share just a little bit specifically about Renaissance before we close this morning. You see, the word Renaissance, that term is a French word, and it literally means rebirth, renewal, and revival. That's what the gospel of grace does to us. It, it makes us born again. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're reborn is what the scripture says. This, this grace renews us, right? It has a way of changing and transforming our lives. And it gives us a reviving. It's actually what revives the church, the work of grace. Our mission is this, that we exist to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life and all the earth. It's this message of grace that we want to carry. We want to be people that have been infected, that have that sticky idea stuck to us, right? Grace. And we are carrying that around in our own person everywhere we go. And that we see it go to the ends of the earth the way that we live this out, our strategy is simple, that we gather like this in worship gatherings. Just as they gathered in thousands in those temple courts, we, we want to gather large like this so that we can be encouraged, that we could be taught in the word, that we could sing and pray and take the Lord's Supper together. We also live out this house-to-house -house type of church in our house churches. It's where we gather on Wednesday nights or Sunday nights. And it's a time for us to come and fellowship and eat together. There's, there's a, a joyfulness about it. We, we connect, we catch up, we pray for one another, and we discuss the things of God, the things of his word together. The, the last piece of our strategy is what we call intentional equipping. We do retreats and, and other leadership training throughout the year because we really think it's going to be good for you. It's going to bless you. It's going to help you. It's going to be formative for you. So through our worship gatherings and our house churches and intentional equipping, we're living out our mission, bringing the gospel into all of life and all the earth. Our, our big dream, our big vision is if you could picture a sponge, if you have ever washed your car by hand and you have a big sponge, you know what I'm talking about? Just picture holding one of those in, in your hand and that represents our community. And if you were to just begin to fill that sponge with water and you feel the weight of that sponge, right, it's, it's absorbing all that water. That's what we want to see the gospel do in our community. It's, the, it's a term that we call gospel saturation, that we want this message of grace to work its way into our lives to where it literally touches all of our community. We believe that God's called us to see 3,000 groups to reach 20,000 people. That's our big long-term vision. We know that's bigger than us. And so part of our vision is that we want to be a church that plants churches, that we want to see guys like me and teams like this going out all over our community, all over our state, our country, our world, and planting churches to see the movement keep moving this grace marked movement. In closing, um, thinking about that 
TED Talk and the man dancing in the field. And I was just thinking about, you know, if the, if the lone man dancing in the field is Jesus, the dance that he's dancing is the dance of grace. And those early followers, those first followers, he, he takes their arms and he teaches them the moves, right? This is how we dance grace. And then over the centuries and the millennia, people keep joining in the dance of grace. I want to see the movement of God. Let's dance the dance of grace together. Let's pray together this morning. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.